Welcome to the teaching ministry at Carthus Creek Community Church. I think we all know halfway through the series why, again, no one wants to preach, let alone read the book of Lamentations. What we just saw and witnessed in that video, the word of God given to us, is an honest, desperate, broken prayer of a person, a prophet, and a community broken by the hand of God. We struggle with this picture of God, I know we do, but like Tara rightly prayed, this is part of the whole counsel of God, and the God that we worship this morning today, led by Alan, is this God. And so today, we must again, as a community, discipline ourselves. We must decide to re-enter back into the book of Lamentations to hear God speak to us. We need to read this most unread book in the Bible. This book made up of five very depressing poems. Because in it, we get to see authentic spirituality. In it, we begin to see what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus in all ways, not just in the good or, or, or the happy times. As I've already shared for the last two weeks, this book made up of these five poems comes just from the word lament. It, it means to cry out loud. It's a dirge. It's really songs sung at funerals. And like I've shared with you already, this is about the fall of Judah the southern kingdom, and it's also the destruction of God's most precious city on earth, Jerusalem, in 586 B.C. In the book of Lamentations, this amazing city is pictured as a widow, a disgraced princess, and she is this way for one reason. She is under the judgment of God because she, to she chose to break her own wedding vows. Results, of course, is what we've just witnessed in this video. The first part of chapter 3 is another summary of the destruction and chaos we together as a family have waited through for two whole weeks. Yet now in chapter 3, halfway through, we begin to see the prophet and the city, and yes, even us, dare to hope through all this brokenness. But before we dive into the community word, let me just camp on the word broken for a moment and the experience of brokenness. In my opinion, it's one of the best words describing this book. But I think in our culture, we need to be clear about what brokenness really means. Marva Dawn was writing some books, and I was reading her this week, and I thought this would be a great introduction for our thinking today. Follow this. Brokenness, she writes, is a typical experience, right? Just now, I was trying to print a writing project, and something went terribly wrong. The, the printer, she writes, started spitting out pages continually, only having one word per line. I frantically tried stopping it, but no commands were working. It kept going until the tray ran out completely of paper. 100 pages of sentences marching down the page, one word at a time. Then my computer began screaming at me, and I began to scream back at it, a long shriek that only ended when I unplugged it. Its shriek, of course, was matched by my desperate cry to God, help me, help me, I'm computer illiterate, visually and mechanically impaired, totally incapable of fixing things, and I'm alone in my house. After more cries, a cup of tea, she writes a feeble prayer and silent pondering. I fiddled with a few things in the project file and began to try again, this time commanding only two pages to be printed. And that worked fine, she shares. But then when I attempted to print the next 15, the paper jammed in the tray, tore out when I began to retrieve it and left part of itself stuck somewhere in the dark recesses of the printer. Now I'm equally stuck. 
Perhaps my husband can dislodge the paper when he gets home. At least he's mechanical, though he's less computer, computer literate than I am. But then she wrote these words. I'm caught more deeply, however, though. I'm stuck in a world that just doesn't work right, where people get hurt, lives get frazzled, and land and water and air get damaged. I'm even more stuck in myself, though I'd love to be calm and patient and wise about everything I've tried to learn. I always find myself anxious, cranky, angry, uh, incapable of mastering important things, and irritatingly handicapped. It's even worse when I'm with people. I don't say what I wish I could say, and then when I do say things, I later regret them. I find myself peeved, judgmental, nasty, or perhaps worst of all, unconcerned about other people. And as for a loving God, she writes, I'm not doing very well either right now. Couldn't God just intervene so I don't waste my time in such messes? Couldn't the Spirit empower me to fix things? Couldn't these sort of be dealt with? Some people these days, she writes, use the word brokenness to summarize all the things I've been describing in these two pages. But the word has been terribly corrupted by, use, by being used to escape the responsibility of the deeper problems which I've noted above, which we used to call something else, sin. Sometimes brokenness is used to reject the notion that there's even evil in the world or to ignore what's wrong with such things as technology, that they just don't malfunction frequently or just to dismiss the notion that there probably are other spirits in this world beyond the human in everything that goes wrong, if it's just simply brokenness, why can't we then fix it? Whoever came up with the idea that human beings are good, whoever could think that the world is as it should be, whoever could realize that there is not a deep alienation in the universe, whoever thought that the meager word brokenness was sufficient to name the mess we're all in, maybe we should let the word go back to describing the state of such things like teacups. I read that and I said, see, there it is. It's beyond the brokenness. Brokenness is a real issue, but the real capital R issue that we face in Lamentations, as we saw in the scriptures, and that we all face, is actually not brokenness, but sin. It's alienation from God, judgment, and then, only then, if we want it, freedom and hope and restoration with God. But you can't get to hope unless you pass beyond the notion of brokenness to sin itself, which leads us right to the middle of Lamentations. After two chapters of shock and awe, death and despair, after the city is attacked, the temple is swept aside, children are dying, mass slaughter, accounts of famine leading to cannibalism, terrible loneliness, genuine prayers of complaint like we just saw, and then silence. After all of this, here in chapter 3, we finally begin to see a little hope, light in the darkness. As one wrote, there is a beacon of light in the midst of total disintegration. Here you see we are, begin, we, are, we are taught how to move back to God, to have a restored relationship with God. And at the heart of this is the act of remembrance. And you see, memory is central in the role of lament. And since suffering and God's mercy are both part of the author's experience, he now places them in this lament side by side. Again and again, we will see today that Jeremiah and the people of God ask God himself to remember his own promises and his own past deeds. Yet also in the middle of their living hell, they will remember. They will remember beyond the smoke, beyond the grief, beyond the pain, beyond the ravages of war, beyond disease and famine and loss. They will discipline themselves to recall their own experiences when God had moved in the past and had done great things. The songwriter now again 
in prayer is pouring out his apocalyptic reality. He's honest, as we've seen, about his terrible feelings, his physical condition, like falling down a well, water is everywhere, death is lurking just underneath. But then halfway through in verse 19, he says this, I will remember my affliction and my wandering and my bitterness and gall. I will remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Why the wandering? Why the bitterness? Why the most bitter taste? Because the people of God are under judgment for sin. They chose, like I shared, to break their own marriage vows, to spurn love, to kiss the mouth of idols and demons instead of being the light of the nations, being the beloved of God. Oh, how that judgment, though, actually violates our individual rights worldview. Again, it was Marvadon who wrote these words about judgment with almost prophetic edge. Our present society likes to say God loves you without any consideration that God loves us in spite of our sinfulness and not because we're even lovable. Furthermore, the idea that God loves you is usually conveyed without any sense of how much it actually costs God to love us in the first place. Finally, those who hallow this corruption forget that God's love also involves judgment. For God certainly spends our lives demonstrating triune love for us through divine judgment on us. Remember, after all, the Bible even teaches that God disciplines us for our good so we can actually share in his holiness. As a professor of preaching, Thomas Long stressed, I believe God loves us so much that he actually might judge us. Yet out of this judgment seen in verse 9, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and 1 through 18, Mercy now comes to the forefront, but only for a moment. Then he says these words in verse 21, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I will have hope. Hope in Hebrew, by the, by the way, means I am waiting, and I am waiting with expectancy. And then he says these words, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Great love is the word mercy, one of the most important words in the Bible. One wrote, that great love of the Lord is the word hesed or mercy. Well, love, of course, is not a wrong translation. It carries a meaning we miss. It's kindness. It's loyalty. This mercy is a kind of act that is not required by law, but springs from a concerned character of the one who is actually acting. A good place to see this is, is Hosea 6.6. 6. God prefers mercy, love, hesed to sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy and knowledge of God are paired together in poetic couplet, and both are contrasted with good religious ritual acts. Well, good and proper must proceed from something deep or more fundamental than a sense of obligation. Stated differently, sacrifice is a requirement in the Old Testament. And therefore, it's good and proper and was given by God. But mercy, but love, is something that has to be freely given. And it's beyond defined requirements. See, it's love here that we need to understand. It's mercy. It is freely given out of a place of deep relationship. It is given to those who are loved by a place that goes beyond friendship or kindness or sexual attraction. It is a love that comes from the author of love, the one who actually has love within his DNA, the one when he breathed life into dust, gave us as humans the same ability to love and be loved. And so because of God's great undeserved love for us his great mercy his covenantal love the prophet then cries out even after he has said all we just saw we are not consumed 
We are not fully destroyed. We are held. We will not be completely wiped out. And as the smoke is blowing by, as ash is raining down on his head, he then says, God's compassions never fail. His steadfast love never ceases. That is why one of God's names is faithful. And then these next words come like an earthquake. Words that have helped millions of people. They've inspired songs. Words that have been cried out, sung, read in thanks and complaint in the good times and the worst of times. Words that have actually been spoken over and said by friends and family as people are dying in front of them. Words like a stone thrown into the pond that ripple throughout eternity and time. And here, the prophet says them in almost hope and defiance against the enemy. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is a good place to say amen. Great is your faithfulness. Where have we heard this before? I mean, where have we as a community seen this profound description of God being faithful and being compassionate and and his mercies being new every morning? Oh, that's right. It was at the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, Moses is facing God. God is facing Moses. And then we have this unbelievable self-disclosure of God. Exodus 34 says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, love, same word, and faithfulness, maintaining hesed, love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes children and their children for their sins of their fathers to the third and the fourth generation. One helped me this week when they tied the two together. They said, look, you can read the claims of lamentations about judgment and mercy as the outworking of what we see in Exodus 34. The corporate judgment that fell on Judah and Jerusalem is like the judgment that falls on the third and fourth generation. Since what is meant here is completion. Think about that. What is meant is completion. To judge the third and fourth generation is to deal with everyone who was involved. But by contrast, to show mercy and forgiveness to thousands is to claim that mercy and forgiveness goes far, far beyond the third and fourth generation. That is why the next group of verses can actually be written in the midst of hell, can be believed, can be held in the middle of absolute torment. That is why mercy, hear this, always outstrips needed and even deserved judgment. I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Because God is their God, he writes, their spouse, their provider. All hope of restoration is firmly grounded in him and him alone. I will wait, he says. I will see the salvation of God. This is not invention, a crutch for desperate, weak people. This is God's very promises that come from his very DNA. And by the way, side note, the only thing that does not change within the context of nature or humanity or time is the nature of God himself. It is good for a man to bear a yoke while he's young. Translation, learn this young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid this on him. I read by this verse quickly and then came back to it and realized something. You see, what's being taught here, most of us as evangelicals miss. Here we have a prophet trying to teach us in the midst of absolute torment, a spiritual discipline pointed out again and again in this book. See, every great woman and man of God throughout scripture and for the last 2,000 years of our great movement called Christianity has taught and lived and fought for something called silence and solitude. 
because they knew it was always a place to meet God. In Tony Jones' little book, The Sacred Way, he outlines this call for silence. He says, without silence, there's no solitude. Though silence sometimes involves the absence of speech, it always involves the act, here it is, of listening. Simply refraining from talking without a heart listening to God is not biblical silence. Ultimately, we can keep silence and solitude so we can listen better, so we can hear what God is saying to us and also about and to our world. It's like being on the phone with a friend who has something so important to say. And so you're on the phone, but suddenly the TV's on and the vacuum's going, so you decide to go in a closet so you can hear clearly what is being mentioned. That's what silence is. That's what solitude is. That is what the prophet teaches us in the midst of the most desperate times. And yet most of us, in the midst of chaos in our lives, we are never silent and we never, ever give God the space for solitude. We actually increase the noise. And then we turn on God and say, God, you didn't speak. And he says, no, no, my child, you just decided not to listen. In the middle of this, we are taught that silence and solitude gets us in the place to listen so we can have something called hope again. The prophet continues, let him bury his face in the dust, yet, yet there may be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him, let him be filled with disgrace, for men are not cast off by the Lord forever, good promise. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion, so great is his unfailing love. Ambrose rightly wrote, as a church father, God's indignation then is not actually a carrying out of violence or vengeance, but rather a working out of our forgiveness. He waits for our lamentations here so that in time he actually can spare us those that he shall make eternal. You will not be cast off forever, the Bible says. You will not be thrown away forever. You will not be discarded or removed forever. Why? Because God is love. Because he is patient and kind and long-suffering. The lamentation... This song goes further. It takes us beyond the personal lament or the communal lament to something that we need to rehear in the church today. Verse 33, he does not willingly bring affliction or grief on the children of men. God is not a thug, the scriptures declare. God did not start this. He is not like someone in an alley just finding joy in torturing people. He doesn't knife people he loves. He did not want this. He tried again and again to move them, to woo them back, to persuade them not to go back into spiritual bondage, back to the kingdom of darkness, back to everything they had been saved from in Egypt. But they, in turn, decided to say no. And since God is wholly other and wholly without sin, and he is not the author of sin and evil... He still had to act. And since human beings are the apple of his eye, remember that? Since we are made in his image and since this nation knew him in relationship, human dignity, communal rights are what flow from him and he wanted for them and he wanted from them. Never forget one of God's names is Savior. He delights in setting captives free. But when his love is spurned post-relationship, where his freely given relationship is broken, then God must act. He's just. And this lamentation... This song, this book, forces us all back from blaming others and just being honest about sin and our own condition. To crush underfoot, you can read it from 34 to 39. It's, it's gut-wrenching honest, but verse 39 is the most important. Why should any living person complain when he's punished for his sins? Don't play the game, the scriptures teach us. 
Don't blame God for your sin or the sins of others. We are humans and at the core of our human existence is choice. And since we're not robots and we can say yes or no, we immediately are confronted with the dark side of choice. We can choose to break God's heart, his law. We can assault ourselves. We can assault God and we can assault others by word and deed. Don't raise your fist at God quickly and say, you are responsible. You did this. Heaven quickly says, no, no, actually you did, and it didn't have to be this way. That's a story from Eden forward, and it's the story contained in every life here. What we learn from Lamentations is God is present as judge, but he's also always present in love for his wayward people. He always is there to provide a way back. At this moment, though we're not going to finish chapter 3 today, the song is beginning to soar. Hope is growing. Second chances seem maybe possible. The end is not the end. Two-thirds now through the song, the call to see God's work in the greatest way among his people is now sung. Actually, here we see the seeds of modern revival, the need for a greater work of God. Let us examine our ways, verse 40, and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Let us look and see our sin. We do not hide from it. We don't blame others, history, culture, our world, our upbringing. We just say, I know I've done it. And then let us turn to the Lord. Why? Well, his mercies are new every morning. And we end with these words. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. See here, this little verse actually matches the outside and the inside. Here, we are taught that when our hearts are really ready, then we lift up our hands. Raising of your hands is a very biblical notion from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a charismatic thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a very biblical thing. Here it means surrender. It means I am open. I, I am undone. My hands are not in a defensive or guarded pattern. Even my body language is actually describing what I'm asking you to do. God of heaven and earth, you have come down and you have brought me low. Now I am open. Do what you need to do in me. In two weeks, Wayne's going to come back and finish chapter 3. But the question that always faces our community, we who are here and you watching and listening, is what is the living God of heaven and earth, the same God who brought judgment and inspired lamentations, saying to us as a community, saying to us individually? Well, first of all, let me again address the many of you who come here who aren't Christians. You're seekers. You may be Christians in name only, agnostics, atheists. You who are spiritual but not religious. You who even belong to other faiths. Hear the word of God very directly for you today. See, this, believe it or not, actually shows you how to meet the true God in a full way. As I've shared for the last two weeks, the Bible is so unbelievably clear that every human being is this city broken, under the judgment of God because we have all sinned and we've been born into sin. That is just the truth of Scripture. And whether you know it or believe it or not, that is you. You are alienated from God by your actions, the scriptures say, and also because you were born into sin. But do you notice this? God always provides a way back home. He's called faithful and merciful. But to jump forward, his faithfulness and his mercy are expressed fully later when he reveals himself as the Lord Jesus Christ, God in flesh. One said much of the poet's experience in chapter 3, especially persecution, suffering, and alienation, are also part of Jesus' experience. More importantly, he endured them on behalf of those he had hesed for, he loved. Whether receiving judgment due to sinners 
or suffering the fate of those who are unjustly accused. Jesus represents all of this on the cross, just as he made it part of his own lived experience. The God to whom the poet prayed and to the poet wished to return is actually the God who is revealed in and through Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus' best friend would write these words later in 1 John. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, to embrace faithfulness and mercy, you have to embrace Jesus, and you have to embrace the reality of your condition. You will never, ever cry out to God to save you until you actually know that you're a broken city and you're in trouble. People that are fine don't need saviors. People who are sick uh, need doctors. People who are well don't need doctors. This is the whole idea. God comes and he says out of love, you must understand your condition to deal with me. The reality of our sin, our condition, our fallenness is key to that relationship. We're all taught in our culture that sin is just about poor choices, poor education, poor childhoods. We believe we can fix all that's broken. We've reduced sinful action to our nature, to the social, the psychological. But this isn't reality. We're just not born good, period. Our society and even now many Christians say, well, we know better. This sin thing is damaging to the ego, to self-worth. We're enlightened now. We have, we have better knowledge. No, we don't. Let's not make God out to be a liar because we think we know better than our creator. We simply need to acknowledge our sin, that we're born into sin. We commit actions every single day that break God's heart and his law and his will, and thus we attack him, others, and ourselves. Nothing in this world can change you at your core other than the one who's dealt with the core issue we face. And the God who actually revealed himself as lamentation, in Lamentations revealed himself fully in Jesus. And that is why many of us here today are followers of Jesus. You must come to him alone and say yes to him alone. One wrote these words for you. It is just wrong to assume that it is possible to have a true relationship with God while rejecting Jesus the Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the only one who dealt with sin. As you read from Genesis to Lamentations to Mark to Revelation, the theme is clear again and again. God the Father can only be known through Jesus the Son. No other system, worldview, or name can be used. Why? Because Jesus is the only one in history who actually was able to deal with the reason why we lament in the first place. He dealt with sin. What will you do with him? There's not one Christian in here today who believes they're a Christian because we were good or moral. We actually got on our knees and realized we were broken and God intervened in his mercy and gave us life. For many of us here, of course, we've already done that in childhood or in the last few weeks. And now we have a living relationship with the same God. So the question is, of course, what is he saying to us? Well, I end with these few words and I'm done. What we see in Lamentations 3 actually is a pattern for renewal and revival. And again, it's not a pattern where if you follow A plus B, it's always going to be C. But we see a heart intent here that we need to recover. The first thing is this. Judgment is a wake-up call. Whether you are judged because you are innocent or you actually are being judged by God. Judgment always is a wake-up call to have a new conversation with God. It shocks us out of the normalcy of what we think. From judgment, we move to prayer and confession. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 teaches us that prayer and confession directed back to God actually breeds strong relationship with God. And then we're moved to repentance. It's a word thrown around in churches a lot. But as one author said, he finds repentance is more than a concept. 
It's a tangible way of relating to God. Repentance is not some magical elixir, but a series of actual steps taken towards God in obedience to his will. For many people, failure to acknowledge the truth about God is less an intellectual matter and more a moral matter, and more particularly, a matter of the will. That is why confession and repentance are integral to real, authentic Christian spirituality. Summary, you don't just talk, you actually act. Judgment is a wake-up call. Prayer and confession become normalized for us. Repentance and no game-playing with God becomes normalized. And then we begin to directly ask God for deliverance. But here's the next step most of us miss. In the book of Lamentations, do you notice the prophet, the poet, the songwriter always says, us, not just I? See, we have something we're facing in our community all the time. We just think that it's about me. And if I get my stuff okay, I'm good. No. When we go before the living God, we go before the living God as an individual and a family. Why do you think on Wednesday nights we've called this prayer meeting? Communally. Because we have begun to understand that it is a communal act. Whether you're innocent or not, we have to go before the living God and deal with our stuff together. Many of you don't come because you think you're just fine. And that's the problem. Renewal and revival and great works of God begin to throw us out of our individualism and begin to teach us something. It's not just about you. It's about us, and you can't divorce yourself from the rest of the family. Remember, the prophet Jeremiah was innocent, and he's writing part of this. Real, genuine moves of God in people's lives and in church communities Always start with judgment as a wake-up call. Prayer and confession become normal. Real repentance of the darkest things become okay and normal. And there is a communal cry of asking God to deliver us. And a communal cry to ask God to forgive us. It's not just about John Thompson or whoever you are. It's about us. And then we wait. We wait. The waiting on God includes practices of prayer and repentance. And it is not just marking time. I end with these words. For you who are waiting for things to happen in your family that have not happened, you who are waiting for an intervention in children's lives, you who are waiting genuinely for a new move in your small group, for you who are waiting for jobs, I mean, Tara listed all sorts of things we are genuinely waiting for, for you who are struggling with the living God about a habitual sin that you've never overcome, for many of us who have gone before God and saying, God, how long is it going to take before you move in an authentic way in our community, in an en masse way? God, how long before I'm renewed? How long before we were revived? How long before an awakening takes place? Not just in this church, but in every church. How long we are taught here that waiting is part of the process. So I end with these words to you. For some of you very specifically who came and you didn't even expect God to speak to you today. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. Our God is a faithful God. You will not be cast off forever, the scripture says. You will not be ignored forever. Heaven will not always feel like brass. And he says these words, because of his undying love for you, he's going to come. In the midst of our waiting, these are the promises we must hold to over our children, over the future of our churches, over our families, 
over the deepest struggles we have, over dealing with history. We need to go to the one who is faithful and is love and he is mercy and he is the one who says, my mercies, even in the worst, worst parts of life, they're present. The only way we survive in this world is remembering our God is faithful even when we're not. Amen? Let's wrestle with God in prayer as we prepare to respond. God, we pray simple prayers. We do, simple prayers. First of all, some of us are relating to lamentations because, honestly, that's what we feel. And we just want to, as a community, thank you very much for putting this in the Bible so we can be affirmed in our struggles with you and others. Just thank you. And we want to pray these things right now uh, in the name of Jesus. Number one, for those who join us who have never seen their condition, so they don't, they don't need your mercy yet, Lord. I pray boldly you'd show them, you'd give them godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow, so they would encounter mercy. It's the best thing that could ever happen. We also pray, too, um, for us as believers, that you would just begin to do this thing in us, that we would begin to wrestle through lamentations and wrestle through judgment and prayer and confession and, and repentance and what it means for us to work together to see you work and then help us to wait. I, I pray this, Lord. There's a lot of people waiting and they're about to give up and they don't even know it's your will that they wait. I pray you'd give them strength and I just pray you'd speak to us. People that are on edge and people are doing fine, but speak to us this truth. Your mercies are new every morning. Help us to remember that you actually are faithful in a world that never is. Holy Spirit, you know who that word is for. I pray you'd give it to them now. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more teaching, info, or to give financially, please visit us at our website, crotherscreek.ca.